Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 28 of the Chasing Discomfort podcast. This was a, an epic conversation. Really hope you guys join it, enjoy it. It was a different sort of subject area that we got into, uh, real crime. Um, someone that I come across that just had to record an episode with. There is quite a few things that Martin wasn't able to to delve into because he signed confidentiality acts and he didn't want to compromise any sort of undercover agents that are still currently working out in Colombia. And uh, obviously we didn't want to put those guys at risk. Um, but yeah, fantastic episode. Really enjoyed the catch up with Martin. Hope you guys do. Leave us some feedback. Um, any reviews you can, five star ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to. And also you can hit us up on our Instagram at I am Chasing Discomfort. And of course, the podcast page direct to the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Catch you on the other side. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Chasing Discomfort podcast, Martin Young. Martin, really excited to have you on. A little bit of a different background and nature to what we usually publish. Um, but before we jump into your journey and your story, what does it mean for you to chase discomfort? And why? I think for me, chasing discomfort is something I've done since I was as a young lad. Um, brought up in a council estate in Sunderland. Uh, you had to look after yourself. Um, um, Love sport. Uh, that really drove me as a young lad and gave me a focus. Um, and it allowed me then to get away from certain temptations which were uh, quite prevalent on a council estate in Sunderland in the, uh, the 70s and the 80s. Um, I, I enjoy putting myself, uh, I enjoy challenge. Um, I did that in sport, um, coming quite um, uh, good at, in particularly in football. Uh, and then joining the forces, do that challenge, really uh, tested myself, and then police service. And then I ended up in kind of what we call covert policing with um, different agencies. Um, within the government. And uh, what were those at the time? What were those council state temptations? Um, uh, you can imagine um, I'm sitting in the house and getting a knock on the door about seven o'clock at night. Um, some uh, of my my friends, there were, and there still are some of them as well, um, unfortunately, uh, um, would borrow uh, people's property, in particular cars, and ask if I would like to go for rides. Um, so kind of crime was was really prevalent. Um, and having the the resilience to say no, and uh, having to face the kind of um, reaction you would get to that um, was quite hard. Mm. Uh, but uh, I didn't want to see myself being in trouble with the police. And that was probably largely driven by my parents, uh, yeah. who were uh, really good and set good standards. And. What was, what was your inspiration or, you know, what was the motivation behind joining the police force? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know, really. Um, it's something I'd always wanted to do since I was a young lad. It, probably more so uh, the military um, as opposed to the police. Um, I think I was driven by my grandfather, really. Uh, he was a World War II veteran. He was actually in the army before... Um, the world uh, 1939 before the world war started he's with the royal artillery um and then obviously he was uh, 
he saw the war through um and then he came out and then he became a miner and worked down the pits till he was 60 65 um having someone in uh, in my life like my grandfather um was superb um a hard working uh, honest uh, respectful um and man um, it was it was great and i think he kind of was a catalyst of um me wanting to be in the forces and and giving me that kind of um, um thought process i suppose mm. and was there any sort of sticky situations when you you first joined the police and then sort of you know being in being back on any of the council estates that you might have grown up in as, as oh, yeah. yeah um I, when i joined the police uh, i joined northumbria police which obviously by the accent i'm guessing a lot of your your listeners will will know where i'm from um i was actually posted to uh, sunland city center um where you can imagine on a weekend so from friday saturday sunday it's quite busy uh, i knew a lot of people uh, in the town um some of them from those estates that i, I, I uh, was born and uh, raised um so i would bump into a few of them to be fair um there was only um one or two occasions where it did get a bit naughty uh i was more concerned about my family if they were threatened and my dad was once um as a result of kind of what i did it's got nothing to do with my dad uh, which was a shame um but most of the time i think probably through the football everybody knew me as more marty the footballer as opposed to uh, marty the policeman um that served us really well and most of the time i would say people in the town it was quite friendly and i remember one occasion uh, i was getting a little bit of um or a few people were getting a little bit the better of me in the city center it was about one o'clock in the morning and all of these guys i, I did grow up with in thorny close um they actually helped us um and the, the other guys trying to say they ran off so they were quickly deputized and they uh, did the job so we we want to we want to dive into your journey and, and probably more the latter part of your of your forces and your policing journey but if you could just give me sort of a little walkthrough of your career and um you know before we sort of dive into the to the latter part of it well I'm quite well, i suppose a diverse career um uh, born and raised in, in sunderland um i left school at 16. um i signed for ipswich town football club um as a young uh, then would be a apprentice professional footballer um i was at the club for uh three years and then in 1986 um i left um i could have went to qbr stoke but decided no i'm going to go on the forces and i joined the royal air force and uh, ended up in the royal air force place i did um, nearly two years in the royal air force place uh, and i left uh, late 88 and then i joined northumbria police in january 89 i was with northumbria police in uniforms you have to do two years in probation and then I, the one thing I wanted to do was to get into CID. Um, I worked hard at that, got in the CID fairly young. Uh, and then I got a taste for like covert policing. So your surveillance, your observations, um, those kind of things. Um, and in 1997, I joined the then regional crime squad. So around the country had different regions. They were all numbered. I was in their number two regional crime squad in the north. And then the regional crime squad became the national crime squad uh that's probably the best for me some of the best times of my 
my service. Then the National Crime Squad, depending on which government was in, we got new names, became the Serious Organised Crime Agency, which it was an amalgamation of not just um, the National Crime Squad, but um, the Immigration Service, uh, HMRC, uh, ourselves. You know, we all put in the Immigration Service. We all came together and uh, became the Serious Organised Crime Agency. And it had a quite specialist role within the Serious Organised organized crime agency which let me see and uh, allowed me to travel all around europe all around the world to be fair uh, doing uh, certain stuff unfortunately i can't really go into what i was doing but that gave me a taste to do something in international and then in october 2013 we became the national um national crime agency um as the guys are now and i applied then on that day i, I was interviewed to be an international liaison officer with the National Crime Agency. Um, that I was fortunate enough to get through, a uh, really, really difficult kind of process to get through as well. Um, and I was posted to Bogota in Colombia, where I saw out my last kind of four and a half years. And I retired in uh, 2019 and went to work at the College of Placing for a little while and then now work for. Um, a DPD. So it's those it's those four and a half years in Colombia that sparks the interest in this <laughs> episode. Um, there'll be, I'm sure, most of our listeners will be uh, aware of a of a Netflix sort of series, um, Narcos, that was loosely documented on on the the sort of escapades of Pablo Escobar. Um, I actually read. Uh, a book by the two DEA agents um, when I was probably in my mid-teens, 15, 16, called Killing Pablo. Mm -hmm. And it was it was basically their their documentary, their diary of their efforts of, you know, trying to, um, to bring Escobar down from his reign of terror, you know, the bombings of all the judges and politicians and basically it's just his control over, is it, is it Medellin, how you pronounce it? Medellin. Medellin. Um, so, yeah, it was... Uh, that really sort of shook my interest in uh, in sort of real crime books um, growing up, and then obviously the explosion of the Netflix documentary, uh, and to have the opportunity to talk to someone who's, you know, been boots on the ground, um, spent you know a considerable amount of time in Colombia, seeing it firsthand. Um, mm. Can you just give us a, a sort of overview and description of of you know how the uh, the narco groups operate? and what life is like in, in Colombia for those types of groups? Well, yeah, um, a lot's changed since um, uh, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena were there. Um, the two guys you mentioned earlier on, I've actually met both of those guys. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really nice, uh, really, really nice guys. Um, met them in Bogota and um, quite, uh, well, they were actually filming Narcos in a pub I used to go to. So right. we had an episode where they were filming the narcos and this was being converted, this bar had been converted into kind of a Miami um, sports bar um, and the work that went into it was it was great to watch. We were allowed to stay in and be kind of extras if, if we wanted to be um, but the real um, Murphy and Pena were actually in that, in, in the shot, I think it's episode 10 um, in series one, they're actually in that in the shot sitting just in front of um uh the actor who plays Pena. Um 
uh, Pedro, and then you see uh, him get a, a text uh, or a pager, sorry, text. I'm going really show me here, you know, um, a pager, sorry. Um, and he goes to this pier phone, which is actually stuck to the wall for the for the for the clip. And uh, he takes a call to say Pablo's been killed uh, from uh, from Steve Murphy. So it was good to meet both the real Murphy and Pena, and actually then I met both actors as well who played who played them. Uh, um, so that was quite interesting. Um, in respect of the um, the criminal groups who who operate in Colombia, a lot's changed since Pablo's day. Um, in Pablo's day, they were more of um, uh, a kind of um, you knew who ran a, a cartel, for instance, and it was kind of a pyramid structure. So you'd come down and you knew, and you could like um, you could write uh, kind of a hierarchy of who was did what within that organisation. Same with the Cali cartel as well. In the, uh, the cartels, kind of all over the country, the main two being the Medellin and the uh, Cali cartels. Things changed over the years. Obviously, the violence and that um, that still was always prevalent there. Um, witnessed uh, some quite serious uh, murders as a result of uh, kind of power uh, power grabbing in relation to um, uh, the fight um, to control uh, the trafficking of drugs and the uh, and the control of ports and in different places where uh, they would actually manufacture the drugs. Um, so what you had was you had uh, different uh, groups who kind of separated. You've got uh, terrorist organisations within Colombia as well. And you've got to remember the the it was kind of a um, fifty years of war uh, against these terrorist groups as well within the two based themselves within the jungles, but they would like uh, take on the um, the the uh, the police the army um, in. Uh, urban environments as well so they were going to the cities that do the bombings that do the killings so you had the uh, the FARC for instance ELN and they would then control certain parts of the country as well uh, control routes so routes from the jungle so the manufacture of the, the cocaine within the jungle the um, e even down to the um, the um, the farmers who grew the, the, the leaves they had a lot of control and they were making a lot of money from that so they're kind of when the peace um, accord came in, so they were in talks from about 2012, and I think it came in around about 2016, 2017, you had breakaway groups as well who realised they'd be making more money doing the drug trafficking than the, what, what they were in their, in their fight for uh, liberation uh, against the government and stuff like that. So these people were really, really uh, well-organised, well-armed, well-resourced, and really difficult to find. Um, Colombia is a very, very diverse uh, country in respect of its kind of um, terrain. So you've got uh, two beautiful coastlines. You've got Pacific and then you've got the Caribbean uh, on, on the north. Uh, you've got the uh, Pacific coast on the west. Then you've got uh, everything from kind of um, uh, swampland, um, jungle, uh, really mountainous terrain as well. It's quite difficult to, to uh, drive through the country. Um, there's there's kind of hardly any trains. If it's a, if it's a train, it's a small train. Nearly everything's done uh, by f uh, flying from different locations, um, and everything's kind of based for about an hour from Bogota. You can fly to most places in the country. So they control a lot of routes, and, and the violence that was there was was unbelievable. Um, 
in order to control these routes, in order to control um, uh, in particular the international kind of side and, and being able to expand their business and get um, uh, to exploit, um, uh, like let's say we say the demand which was going around the world. What are the so I understand the routes and obviously you know the the vast sums of money that are involved by controlling getting the drugs in and out for everyone who sort of takes their takes their sort of profit at different stages. But you know you, you, I've seen documentaries where they say that um, you know some of the guys had built their own submarines to move stuff to international land. Um, there was a lot of flying in sort of small aircraft and and stuff coming over in boats via. Know, different islands what, what was the sort of if if you can give us like a bit of a high level strategy of, of you know from the farm to um say like the american shores or over to europe how would that sort of work right and so what you've got you've got your growers who were kind of um, the poor farmers um they would grow the cocaine uh, co uh obviously um it's the leaves that they they want they've got some really good plants now where they can i think get more than four kind of crops per year um you need a lot of leaves to make even one kilo block of cocaine so obviously the leaves are vitally important um prior to around about i think it was about 2015 2016 they used to have a, a spray um policy where they would spray i think it was glyphosate they used to call it and they would target their growing areas uh, which were normally mountainous areas or quite quite remote areas so they could target them quite easy well, then there was kind of a kickback on that to see it cause cancer. Uh, so the government stopped it. Uh, and probably around about that time, you saw a huge leap in, in cocaine production. And it was a result of them not being able to, to kind of uh, crop the harvests uh, as, as well as all, how they used to control them. So from the leaves, the leaves would be um, harvested. The farmers would sell the bundles to um uh some a representative from one of the cartels or or kind of a middleman who would then come and buy the uh the the leaves from them they'd go to uh, quite a um uh a jungle lab shall we say and they're not the best kind of uh conditions shall we, uh in order to grow uh, to to uh, kind of uh, manufacture so initially what they'll do they'll make what can base basuko uh, that basuko then is kind of the the main product that they would convert into cocaine hydrochloride, which is kind of your, your Colombian kind of um, what you'd see on the TV and that. That's the white, really white powder. That's probably about anything from high 80s to mid 90s kind of percentage of cocaine. Um, what's the, what's the other percentage? Is that what they cut to get it into the the powdered sort of format? Yeah, it's it, it's I mean it, it is kind of for them un, unadulterated. Mm -hmm. It's not what you'd find on the streets of the UK or the US or in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of um, uh, bashed or mixed with kind of other products by the people who buy it in in those countries. So in Colombia, they would probably they, they, they've got a process by how how they would do it, and it's quite a an easy process to be fair um, to to make cocaine hydrochloride but um the need uh, essentially the need uh the, the need the plants um basically the cocoa leaves are kind of pulverized uh mixed with some kind of alkaline material uh, 
baking soda, for instance. Um, then they need some kind of solvent, some kind of organic solvent, so uh, kerosene, um, uh, gasoline, that kind of stuff, uh, and a lot of water. So a lot of these labs need a water source. They're always very, very close to water sources as well. Mm -hmm. um, obviously mix all of that up, uh, and then the water and the leaves are discarded, and a kind you then get um, an acid, normally sulfuric acid. So you can see how much damage this is doing to an environment as well. Yeah, it's not just the kind of the damage it does to, to people's lives, um, um, and and how it can affect the health service and companies and this that and the other. It's got a huge environmental uh, effect in the in the jungles of Colombia. Um, so they mix it again with uh, some acid, uh, mix it with a few other solutions, trying to remove these residual kind of solvents which with within it, and then add a bit more baking soda. Uh, it's then dried, um, and then it creates a putty-like substance, which is your basuco. And then, then it's converted into your um, your high a cookie and hydrochloride. And, and is it true that um, you know, like the the cartels would have people on their payroll to sort of, you know, if they let ten shipments go through, they'd tip them off for the eleventh. So there was a little bit of a, you know, relationship there that they would give them some sort of small change, is it, so they could have a bit of publicity for the media, or, or is that just sort of sensitization stuff from the documentaries and books? No, I think what's evident from a lot of things, I suppose most of your listeners will will have read or heard. You know, or even seen on movies and that uh, corruption is huge and uh, i'm not saying it's just in colombia it's all over yeah. corruption is huge um, and one of their prime kind of responsibilities will be to gain control at, at ports uh, whether they be airports whether it be seaports um a clandestine kind of um uh, runways that kind of stuff so they can uh, export their products so corruption is huge um i worked on quite a lot of corruption related uh, investigations in in Colombia, um, some of which involves quite high, um, um, quite, uh, quite high officials within the um, prosecution service, the fiscalia, um, the police, the um, immigration, and other kind of uh, government agencies uh, who were take, obviously on the take um, from the uh, the the organised crime groups operating there. And it was something which was a big risk to us as well, because the some of the people we dealt with were actually those who we ended up being um, arrested for corruption. Hmm. Can you um, share some of your sort of, you know, what you are allowed to disclose? Because I appreciate there is a lot of confidential information that you can't share. But some of the sort of success stories that you've been part of um, that you're able to sort of walk us through, um, you know, different operations. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate, GA, in so much that, you know, this is something, again, you, you taught that, that first question you asked about the discomfort side and, and putting yourself out there. I've been in the police for um, 26 years or in in that kind of law enforcement. In my last four years, I'm thinking about going to Colombia. Uh, it was a firearms role, so obviously we had a firearm to protect ourselves, only on certain operations, not all the time. Um so it was kind of really putting yourself in a, in that position of discomfort. But for me, it was a challenge. I love, absolutely thrived on it. Um, so the, just so the listeners understand, so the NCA will deploy um, international liaison officers. 
um, in strategic locations all around the world uh, and where they kind of use our expertise in order to kind of to help disrupt uh, serious criminality in uh, in those uh, areas uh, before kind of impacts on the UK. So we got a big support network in the UK, which helps and provides assistance to us in country and to our partners. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing as well. This partnership it needs this global reach. In order for us to operate within a country, we need a kind of buy-in. Uh, we need to work in collaboration with our law enforcement partners or military partners, depending on where we are. Um, so that's really, really important. So having the ability to, to form those relationships is really, really vital. A big thing for me there was language. I went, or I had 120 hours before I went to, uh, to uh, before I was deployed. I did speak a little bit Spanish, but just your basic kind of, uh, kind of a table, kind of a beer, that kind of thing. Going to a meeting, having to lis listen to quite strategic meeting with quite, with the ambassador around the table and other people like that, all in Spanish is quite difficult. And again, it puts you in your discomfort zone quite a lot. But being immersed in it, I'll, I picked it up really well. And I'd like to see how I'm operationally proficient. I wouldn't say fluent, but certainly operationally proficient. Um, and, and getting back to our roles, our role was to share our knowledge, skills and experience and try and, and help and mentor uh, different uh, groups within the company where we were in and, and help and support them in their investigations. Um, these could include drugs, firearms, human trafficking, child sexual abuse. It could be even cyber kind of related um, uh, criminality, criminality um, money laundering, but the key was working in collaboration with them. And during my time when I was there, I was very fortunate to work with um, uh, the CTI, Corpo Tecnico Investigacion, who were the judicial police for the Fiscalia, the prosecution service. Um, during my time with them, um, we had some really, really good results. One of them, which was an English guy, a great story, like a guy called Andrew uh, Dima. Um, um, Andrew... Um, came from Spain, he, he, a young Colombian girl he met many years ago. And he won't mind, he won't mind me telling you the story. Um, he was a nice guy to speak to, but unfortunately me and him were on different sides of the fence. Um, he, he told me the story how he ended up in Colombia. And he said he met a beautiful Colombian girl uh, back in early 90s, I think it was. Um, she went back to Medellin. He was in Spain at the time with his family. He then ended up in Medellin. He actually met Pablo um, and because she had a cousin who was affiliated to the Medellin cartel and he became the Englishman and he was kind of a, a go-to guy for um, English um, or English transactions in Colombia, shall we say. So he was kind of the go-to guy, essentially. Um, he stayed in Medellin, he married um, a Colombian um, um, and ended up uh, doing quite well for himself, as you can imagine. And, but he came across my crosshairs, as it were, um, whilst I was working there. I just heard um, that guy sounds a little bit English. Not, what, what's he doing here? So kind of we targeted him. And sure enough, uh, a couple of years later, um, he was arrested. But during that time, we recovered over probably three and a half tons which he was uh, involved with. Um, he 
and he came up with some quite nifty ways of um, transporting the product to uh, to Spain and to the UK. Um, we were involved as well with uh, preventing a big bomb attack in Colombia. Um, there was quite a lot of bombs going off, uh, mainly being uh, uh, set off by FARC and the ELN. Um, and we managed, uh, again, a great uh, investigation which involved um, some of the things that we were um, helping the Colombians with and just advising them. We were in an advisory role. We weren't live on the on, on the ground, as it were. Um, we have done some good work there. We prevented a, a, a big bomb attack. Uh, but probably, for me, the biggest um, one was probably the uh, uh, job in November 2017. Um, but after about seven months' work, working with the Columbia National Police, um, we ended up uh, seizing 13.4 uh, tonnes of uh, cocaine from four kind of areas, uh, very close to each other, four locations uh, or stash sites in these banana plantations, um, and uh, recorded 13.4 tonnes. And that was just, wow, unbelievable. But the work that went into that, the seven, eight months' work was was quite hard. I remember getting a call very early in the morning from the colonel I work with, and he says, right, we're ready to go. Uh, so they picked me up. We flew into Medellin initially, and then we went up uh, to the Gulf of Uruguay, near that area, and then um, we went in and, and raided the, the four sites and ended up with more or less a half a football field full of... Um, um, panelas or kilo blocks of cocaine. So um, th th that's the largest land uh, recorded sort of recovery of, of cocaine in Colombia, is that correct? It is, yeah, and I believe it still is to this day. So seven months of, of painstaking work, and uh, you know, this might sound like a bit of a, a strange question to up, but I'm really intrigued how a lad from Sunderland with this quite sort of thick northeast Geordie accent. Um, and, and ends up in um, in Colombia. Like, was there any sort of hairy moments where you know? Because I'm imagine that it, you know these sort of areas um, that are controlled by the cartels. Um, you know, anyone that sort of looks out of place is going to raise suspicions and, and eyebrows. And these are not the sort of people to just ask friendly questions. You know, was there any sort of moments where? Um, it got a bit too close for comfort, you know, when you was out and about. Um, not really. I think um, you're relying a lot on your tradecraft. You're relying a lot on your training. Um, your job is to be like the green man, and you were. We were different to probably Zoa uh, or some of the other countries who worked there. They were a little bit more um, in your face kind of thing, or they stood out a little bit more. Um, we were certainly because there wasn't many of us either compared to kind of uh, the americans and and uh, other other countries who were uh, who were there we were um there was, wasn't many of us there and our job was um a little bit more um we had to be in the shadows because there wasn't enough of us number one and number two that's how we operate um and it was highly effective we probably had bigger seizures than some of our um um overseas partners uh, with less people but probably with more effective uh, use of intelligence and and how we operated um once those seizures are made 
is there any sort of backlash from the cartels? You know, I can. Is there like a, a high levels of violence cascade after it? You know, the heads roll for the guys that had the stash taken off of them. What's the aftermath once the sort of seizures have taken place? I would have loved to have been at the debrief after the 13.4 tons. Uh, that would have been very interesting. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it can be targeted against um, individuals from law enforcement. Obviously, uh, we could be figured in that. Um, more importantly for me, it was my Colombian colleagues, the other people who live, the other people who work there, the other people who've got families there. I'm a guest in their country. It's di it's different for me. Um, I've got absolutely utmost respect for uh, all Colombian law enforcement and military after 50 years of war, what them people have been through. And they're still losing people to this day um, through unnecessary violence and, and terrorist um, uh, actions against them. Um, so for them to live, breathe and work in those conditions, for me, that every single one of them deserves a medal. They're, they're unbelievable. Um, and they do, they do get targeted quite high level as well. You've obviously seen it firsthand, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure Colombia is a beautiful country. Um, you know, I can picture this sort of, you know, very diverse mountain ranges and geography, you know, the beaches and et cetera that, that you described. Um, do you think, in, in your humble opinion, there is a way out for Colombia? Can you see, you know, is the answer to legalise these drugs or, or have it taxable or, you know, can you see a, a logistical way to sort of stop all the violence and the killing and, and the associated uh, issues that go along with the cocaine trade? That's a really good question and something which has come up quite a lot because demand in Colombia for cocaine, cocaine use is not high. Um, it's the demand worldwide that makes the country so um, um, impoverished in, in a way because the, the the power struggle which is ongoing there. Um, so it is such a shame because, as you said, what a country. It's so beautiful. Um, I'd recommend it to anybody to go, particularly in the north in Tyrona National Park. Um, it, it's amazing. Um Jungles, you've got Amazon basin there in the in the uh, the southeast corner, um, border of Brazil. I cannot speak any highly of the country, and the people there are unbelievable. Absolutely lovely, lovely people, very friendly, very engaging. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know what the answer would would be. Um, a lot of people said legalize it yet. Um, this this would still go on. The Mexicans have got a really big f f footprint in, in Colombia now to the manufacturing, where before they would always have a Colombian middleman. Now the Mexicans, they have moved in um, in order to control more manufacture, transport, and obviously then trafficking. Um, I don't know uh, what the answer would be. Certainly, it is responsible for a lot of uh, unnecessary uh, pain and suffering and uh, loss of life. Uh, and that seems to be the nature of that game. And that's probably one of the reasons it, it drew me into it. It wasn't the kind of the pomp and fame you see on all of these the movies. It was more what lies behind, even going back to what I said earlier on, the environmental effect, the, what it can leave a river source totally contaminated. Um, it's so sad when you go into a jungle afterwards um, and you see the, the effect uh, of what's occurred. And so rural, that's why you're probably seeing a lot of TV shows. The, the 
blowing up the jungle labs. That's the only thing really you can do because they're so rural, they can't cut everything out. So the best way to do it, and what normally happens is if they if they raid a lab, uh, people get away, then they could reorganize somewhere. They're all armed, and then they could attack the police or the the, the soldiers who have actually just done the um, interdiction on the lab um, and come back and, and attack them. So when you do do a lab, you go in quick and you come out quick. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that, um, you know, there's, like you say, serious costs to not only, um, you know, members of the forces' lives, but the, the environment and the destruction of, you know, the likes of the kerosene and the gasoline being up in the jungle, not in its natural environment, you know, ruin habitats for animals and, and like you say, sort of getting into the water system as well, can't, can't be doing good for any of your, shall we say, legal farmers. <laughs> um, off of that water system um yeah it's you know I, I, it is a very sensationalized and, and glamorized world from the the books and the films um and i think you know speaking firsthand to someone who's who's witnessed it um you know firsthand it, it's a uh, it, you know clearly that there's not too many people that have have had this opportunity and, and experience and what would be your your biggest sort of personal takeaway from your time in Colombia? My biggest takeaway was actually a Colombian street dog. He's actually over here now. Um, A friend of mine, she was walking her dog in a local park and she came across um, this dog who was kind of malnourished every rib um, that he had. Um, She took him home and eventually my wife saw him. Boom, that was it. He's coming. So that was about 2016. We got Diego, and he's he came back with us. So that's probably the biggest takeaway. But no, seriously, um, the friends I've still got there, um, the friends I made, and uh, not only in Colombia, but uh, in I've got friends uh, friends in Australian Federal Police, so in in Australia, in Canada, RCMP, in the US, got loads of friends within DEA, FBI, military, um, in Europe. Uh, all our European partners, and, and it was very much uh, um, you were looking after each other while we were there. Um, and and again, a lot of friends still in Colombia as well. I keep in touch with. I'll go back tomorrow. If, if, in all honesty, um, it is a great place, and people shouldn't be put off by the history. It has changed a lot. Um, Bogota certainly is a great city to go to. Well, then you've got like Cartagena on the coast. You've got Medellin, the, the eternal city of spring. It's just beautiful. You mentioned before we um, we went live on this podcast that you'd, you'd received um, like a letter of thanks that was sent to the current UK um, Prime Minister. Can you can you sort of share the details of that with us? Yeah, um, as a result of that um, that job for the thirteen point four tons. Uh, President Santos actually visited where we were on a, an army base in, in the north of the, the country. Um, and he actually personally thanked uh, me. I met him, uh, which was quite good to meet the president of the country. Uh, as you said earlier on, a daft lad from, from Sunderland, and he's shaking hands with the president of, um, of Colombia was quite a, a, a pinching of your skin time. Um, really, really nice guy. Um, uh, very very pleased with the the relationship um, he he has with the with the UK, and he was actually flying back to or he was flying to sorry London 
uh, that very night and he was meeting the Prime Minister at the time was Theresa May and uh, he wrote quite a nice letter which I've got a copy of uh, to uh, the Prime Minister thanking um, uh, the British government for for assisting them and, and the continued assistance we we used to give. When um, when you when we talk about chasing discomfort and you know putting yourself in stressful environments and situations, you know clearly there, there would have been times where um, there might have been part of you that was was very nervous about a certain situation or an operation or months and months of hard work. You know whether you'd get a result or you know being in being in sticky situations in a in a foreign environment. Mm-hmm. What's the best advice you could give? to our listeners in regards to how to sort of manage those stress levels in real extreme sort of high high yeah. situations? I think for me, I was very reliant upon my, my training. Um, the, the training we received to do certain roles is quite intense. Um, everything from like your basic surveillance courses and then there's some really niche um uh, very specialized courses and you, you're training with uh, not just british policing and you're training with um the military you're training with with other people so very much for me was relying on my training mm-hmm. trusting my training trusting my instincts certainly saying something that's not right that doesn't feel right and re- and really relying on that um but basically having having that drive to to use the fear as a tool as well um to turn it into a tool where look here yeah i know the risks these are the these are how we're going to mitigate the risks. These are the contingencies that we're going to have. So planning was huge. Um, having the planning, having a plan for every single contingency you could think of, from a motor vehicle breaking down to it all going um, live, and then you you've got to take cover and stuff like that. So your training was huge. Or certainly, in my opinion, it was. It kind of that drove you. And it give you the confidence in in order to deal hopefully with any situation mm. failing to prepare is preparing to fail right as they say exactly mate. yeah so um this uh four and a half years of of columbia um you you speak and, I, and I'm, I'm taking on board that you know there was a lot of pride in the work that you've done um over the years of sort of serving you know whether that's from the royal air force to the police to to the nca um can you can you give us an account of your sort of proudest sort of personal achievement or moment in that career oh wow probably my proudest moment would be oh that's a great question yeah I've, I, I think I've loved every single bit of my life in respect of what I've done from playing professional football to then going in the, the forces, the military, and then going in the, the police service and then in government service. I've just loved every minute. It, it, it's been like an adventure as opposed to a chore. Mm. Um, I suppose it could be summed up really by, it was I think it was the last day that we were there and I'd been called to the general's office in um, in Bogota and hadn't a clue and I, I ended up getting a couple of medals being awarded which uh, officially awarded as well so 
I could actually wear them in the UK if I wanted. Uh, one of them I was really proud of, which is the Major Quintero anti-narcotics medal. Uh, and I won that three times um, with some other operations I did. Um, but then after that, I got called in the general's office and I thought, what's going on here? And they brought out a, a Colombian's officer's sword and they presented us with this sword. Uh, I just, wow, I didn't know what to do. I was filling up, I was, what's going on? And it, it, obviously they were saying, thanks for your service and your efforts, trying to make our country safe and peaceful. Um, and then he went into a few, with some operational stuff, which I can't really speak about, but it was it was amazing. Uh, my wife was there and, and she was she was filling up as well. And I think she felt as proud as me. And I've still got that, that sword today. And I look at that and I think, that's good. Mm. Yeah, some amazing memories there. Um, it, it, uh, it sounds like you had a, a fabulous time out there in Colombia. Well, I did, mate. It was great. Um, I think now's a good time, Martin, for us to jump into our standard sort of quick fireish questions um, that we wrap up the podcast with. Mm -hmm. um, and from, from any part of your career or your life experiences, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Um, it, it's kind of a little kind of quote as well, this. And I was given this by um, uh, a flight lieutenant in the RAF and uh, a lot of time for. And he says, remember, always remember, respect is earned, honesty is appreciated, trust is gained, and loyalty is returned. And that's still with me for in fact, it's, I think it's on the phone at the minute. I just I just think that sums up everything in the type of person I am as well, I think. Was that an ethos from the RAF or was that just his sort of it was kind of him really? Yeah. And that wasn't it it was I suppose in his DNA as it were. Um and he brought an art and just something which stuck and I thought, Oh, I like that. Mm. Yeah, it's great, great life rules to to sort of remember and live by. On that note, what's your one non-negotiable rule that you do live by? I think it goes somewhere along what we just spoke about there, and, and that's treating people uh, like to be treated myself. Mm -hmm. I don't think you go wrong. Uh, it gives you a stable platform to work from, depending on their reaction. And then it's a bit like Batari's box after that, where they're whatever their attitude and, and their actions will influence what you'll do. Favourite quote? Um, and this is, goes back to what I said earlier on about, um, I found this about say, about eight years ago before I was taking on the ILO, ILO role and I always thought, oh, this, this is spot on to be an international liaison officer. And for me to convince somebody in a different country that the best course of action is this, but that's going to help them and it's going to help the, the United Kingdom. So I saw something in uh, some uh, leadership kind of book, I think I was reading at the time, and it basically goes, you smile as your logo, your personality is your business card, and how you leave others feeling because of an experience with you is your trademark. And I just thought that was absolutely spot on, mm. what I was trying to do in, in Colombia. Yeah, it's great. I, I read something the other week that basically it describes that um, you can either be the light or the radiator that lights up the room when you walk in, or you can be the drain, you know, when, and you can suck the life out of the room at, at the same point. And, and basically how you want to leave that room, any experience that you're able to touch or bless with anyone should always leave 
someone in a in a positive or a, you know better a better light. So um, it's not always the easiest thing to do, especially when you're in a you know like a, a highly stressful sort of environment or situation. But have you got any Extreme. tools or tactics that you're able to share with the listeners that you know you're able to? I, I get that the majority of it's mindset mm-hmm. um, and and having. And, and brain training basically you know putting putting your your own mind for a, a gym to be able to sort of repeat that you know as best as you can all day every day mm-hmm. but is there any sort of tactics that you've picked up along the way to to help tune that in no i think it's a lot it's driven by you it's driven by personality as well and it's driven by how you've kind of how you are in yourself um you can still be focused you can still be uh, really highly driven, but what you've got to remember is, and, and, and sometimes you've got to think of the end game as well. Um, I'd rather me leave uh, if I've failed at something, uh, the failure, I can either uh, get myself down because I've failed, but then I'd rather say, right, I've tried, but I've failed, but I've learned. And from that, I'm going to be even better. So there's times when i've tried to to promote this kind of um personality driven attitude where you're not going to get a reaction sometimes with some of our um our, our overseas partners you go into a meeting there no reaction whatsoever and that's because they want something out of you mm-hmm. probably more than what you want out of them and i've always found this collaborative approach and sometimes it's a game of playing cards it is that diplomatic game uh, and yeah. you can't offend at the same time you're we're trying to protect british interests and that's the kind of the, the the thing you've got to have in your mind as well so you represent the uk you represent yourself you represent the ambassador and if you look up on any of them you're going to be in his room so you have got to be kind of on on or uh, you have got to be grafting all the time mm. um, for me it, it fires my rockets I, I just love it and i'll be honest i miss it <laughs> Where, where do you think that drive comes from? What, what fuels that that ambition to have that um, sort of you know level of of desire to to go after those sort of ambitions and situations? I don't know. It's certainly um, it's not from my parents um, mm. as much as I love them to death. But um, I think it's always been in us as, as a young kid. I wanted to be good at football. I didn't want to be good. I wanted to be the best. Yeah. Um, I represented quite high level and as i said i eventually signed professional terms at ipswich um and i think that's that drive within you um that really you know you want to be the best you want to be the best um and i i i want to be the best but i'm not one of these people who who shout it out from the the tallest tower and say look at me look at me i'm that great man again i want to be the best but i can live with the fact i know yeah i know i'm the best I have my own little personal tagline and it's sort of um you know i call it integrity it's the art of giving a shit when no one's looking yeah so you know on that day where the wind's blowing and the rain's coming down cats and dogs and the sofa looks really inviting to switch to telly on but you said to yourself you was going to go out for a run or you're going to go and do a, a workout in the garage and it's minus one outside and the the bar or the pull-up bar is cold to touch and everything just feels like, you know, your brain wants that easy, easy mm-hmm. sort of life and it's giving you all the excuses to, to check out. Um, and I, I listened to an interview with Mike Tyson 
the other day and he was basically saying discipline 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 if you can do something that you hate like you love it then that's discipline and yeah. he always he always comes back to that like his time with customato he's, he's boxing coach um you know was like a father figure in his younger days because he was a everyone knows was a bit of a wild character you know a new york street kid that was going around robbing people beating people up at the weekends for drugs and money and and, and what else but you know monday to friday in the boxing gym he was the most disciplined um sort of guy that you know at the time he was the youngest heavyweight ever on, mm -hmm. on record and um you know i think ev everything that we do you know whether it's personal work career always boils back down to that one word of, of discipline and being self-disciplined with your own actions and being 100 percent accountable and a book that i've read um by uh, an ex or us navy seal um Jocko willett called extreme ownership it, it basically portrays this ethos that um you have to be a hundred percent responsible and own absolutely everything even if sometimes you feel like it's a bit of pill to swallow um, if you accept it and accept everything that's coming your way, you know, it sort of breeds that um, air of, of positivity and, and that, you know, you will get through any type of situation, you know, how, how bad it might seem at the time. Um, but just having that ownership and responsibilities there. Yeah, it's huge. You know, accountability, responsibility, having that again, that, that mindset, right? Yeah, this is mine. I'm going to sort it. Mm. Brilliant. Uh, let's get back to the questions then. Um, two dinner guests you'd invite, either dead or alive? Well, it would depend really what I want. Do I want culture? Do I want genius? Do I want politics? Uh, history? Um, wit? Um, I've, I think I, I talked about earlier on my granddad. Definitely have my granddad back. He had all of them. Mm. He had all of them, especially in the club. When he's playing cards with the lads, and the other one would be Tommy Cooper. Right, okay. I love Tommy Cooper, and I think he would just bring that, that laughter and that that humour to a party where you, you'd just be belly laughing all all the time. Mm. Uh, so my granddad uh, and Tommy Cooper for me. It's such it's such a special trade comedy, isn't it? And being a yeah. comedian because what they say is not it's like you know especially the guys that do the real life stories um you know if if you was to just say it in a monotone sort of story and description it's it's not that funny but the way they're able to sell it and put their little twist and turns on it it, it really is like a yeah so it's a real uh, highly trained sort of you know the way they deliver the punchlines and have you know stadium falls of people absolutely rolling in laughter it's a very very special technique and I think it goes back a little bit what you said earlier about discipline. Mm. Yeah, discipline in, in in being able to deliver and be consistent with those performances is probably similar to a sportsman. Yeah. Well, and probably the same kind of pressures as well, uh, because they're there to perform to the best of their ability. Mm. Yeah. Good. Um, what's your sort of go-to song? You, you know, like if you was back in your football days that you wanted in the training room to get you fired up or... Now, um, what, what, what would be the song to get you going? Man, there'd be loads. But I think being a Sunderland lad and a Sunderland supporter, it's got to be Dance of the Nights by um, 
Prokofiev. I'm not going to sing it. You nearly got me singing. <laughs> um, but it's Dance of the Nights. Yeah. Google it if you have, if you've never heard it. But um, it used to be the entrance song for Sunderland. Right. Okay. You know, a little here, dear. That gets the blood pumping, does it? Or does it ever, mate? Yeah. Yeah. And did back in your football days, did was there like a a culture in the changing rooms with music back then to sort of? No. Get, no, it was very silent. Very. It was. Um, there was a little bit coming in. I mean, I learned a lot moving down from the northeast down to uh, the southeast. Mm -hmm. Different kind of culture in, in music yep. in the kind of the early eighties. Um, um, some of the guys in there, and uh, Dillian Atkinson, God rest his soul, he was one. Uh, Deal, he taught me a lot about um, like different types of music, um, which I still love to this day. Um, no, it was it was good. It was it was good, but not as I think is uh, prevalent as it it is now. Mm. Uh, we were more focused on playing football and enjoying ourselves. You're our second guest, actually, that's been on the show that was um, at Ipswich Town. Um, oh, there's, there's a little bit of a connection as well, um, because he's now sort of like an international uh, house DJ. Um, DJs all over the world. And he, when I said, have you ever had a pinch yourself sort of moment? And he said, yeah, I was DJing in, in basically in the jungle in South America. He'd got flown out there and was playing at this festival. And... Um, yeah, it's just a bit of a, a cross of worlds. Our, our um, you know, you both played for Ipswich and both been out there in in South America. Wow. Um, book you've read more than once and why? Right. Um, oof, I've read quite a few. So my favourite authors are Mark Dawson and Ian Rankin, and uh, probably with the Mark Dawson uh, is the John Middleton series. It's about I think he's about eighteen books or nineteen books now in in that series. And I've probably read, um, I would say, 10 of them twice. I just love the way he writes. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot in there, actually, is some of the stuff kind of I've done. And he writes quite accurately. So he's obviously got, got good advisors. Yeah. Um, uh, very accurate in, in a lot of the things he does. And I just, I just can't put the book down. And I think that's part of his mantra. Um, it's uh, unputtable or something he, he calls it. And once I've read it, I want to read it again. So the Mark, uh, Mark Dawson, John Milton series, and Ian Rank and the Rebus. Absolutely love Rebus. Mm. Uh, probably is different altogether, obviously, uh, 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 kind of a, a maverick kind of detective uh, up in Scotland who likes to drink. Um, um, still a fit guy, ex-military. Um, and again, some of the things he gets involved with, I just think they're great. And Ian Rankin... He, he writes so um, powerfully about uh, particularly Edinburgh and in, in, in and around Scotland. I love Edinburgh. Edinburgh is one of my favourite cities. And I can actually see myself where he's talking about, whether it's a bar, whether it's an area, whether it's a, even a, 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 a like little lane. So I've been there and I remember. And he's he, he's really accurate with his, um, he loves his music and some of the music and uh, he describes and it obviously comes from him into Rebus, Rebus's character, I think is fantastic. Mm. They're kind of the, the two I've really went back to. On, on that note, um, on, on the sort of media, is there any uh, documentaries or is there any sort of books that you would recommend that really um, disclose and, and paint the true picture of um, 
what hap- what what goes on and what happens in Colombia and, and stuff with the narcos. I, I wouldn't see a, a book. Um, there's a fantastic website, mm-hmm. and it's called Inside Crime, and it's written by um, uh, uh, an English guy called the. Uh, is he English? Uh, Jerry McDermott. You have to Google Jerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry uh, lives and works in in Colombia, and he, he he writes about the Americas, uh, the Caribbean, um, and the impact of uh, crimes got in in those countries, and the impact that's got on um, Europe and different places in the world. If anybody is interested uh, in in studying kind of the Americas and stuff like that, uh, Jerry McDermott and Inside Crime is absolutely brilliant. Good. Um, favorite film. Oh, it's got to be for me, Seven Private Ryan. Yeah. Oh, what a film. Mm. A film, it was more like an experience as opposed yeah. to, you know, living through an experience as opposed to watching a film. I just love it. I think is it the opening sort of 15 minutes of that is just yeah. like a, yeah, a real dose of humble pie when you realise what some of those guys went through. You know, on some of them famous battles and the beach landings and, you know, all, all the stuff that um, probably in the 100-mile-an-hour pace of everyday life now, it gets tend to sort of um, mm. be, be forgotten about. But And we only sort of celebrate it on, on sort of one or two occasions a year, you know, with the anniversaries and, and um, Remembrance Day and stuff. But it, it really is, uh, you know, a harsh reminder to some of the sacrifices that, the servicemen and the guys went through to to protect our lands and shores from you know what possibly could have happened with the with the whole uh, sort of Nazi empire and the, the dictatorship under Hitler is um, it's fascinating really that you know they're able to capture something so emotive and so moving um, yeah yes yeah, so well it certainly didn't trivialize the nature of war I think no. when it brings that kind of the true dark account of kind of what it really is. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a great film. Yeah, and no, that is a cracking film. What do you do when you um you start feeling a bit sort of stressed? I put my trainers on and go for a run. Yeah. So uh, I'm quite lucky because the dog is uh, he's just built for running. So it's just me and the dog. As soon as I get the he's got his trainers on and he's ready to wait at the door. So yeah, me I, I I it just clears my mind. It allows us to to get rid of all that negativity which may have come in and just say right okay uh, it's time for you to uh, to start running this again and, and getting rid of all of those negative thoughts yeah and, you a headphones type of guy or do you just like to just switch no, off and listen to them? I, I switch off and listen to nothing mm. um i never put head, headphones in i suppose it goes a little back to a bit more the tradecraft stuff mm. so you can actually hear what's going on yeah more so than than anything else but I do it just like just go for it. Mm. I think one good thing about COVID, when uh, when everything was quiet and we all were locked down to a degree, you could actually hear what was going on. Yeah, in nature, you could hear the birds, you could hear everything. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I remember in the, in the first lockdown, the summer, um, chatting to one of my neighbours because I couldn't believe you know what I could see in the sky at night, um, and after that was because the sort of lack of air traffic going on and the pollution going up from all the cars. Uh, you know, like the stars and the and the, the sort of um, scenery from from the sky was unbelievable. Um, you, you do wonder how much of an influence we have on the world and its environment. You know, when we're just chugging along, 
doing mm-hmm. day-to-day stuff with your head down you know all the car emissions and industries and fires and, and all sorts of stuff going into the environment um yes so back to the questions then what's your mantra when the going gets tough i think my mantra is um kind of i'm in control of how i think how i feel and how i act and what i do and that kind of goes back a little bit and there was a time a good friend of mine a guy I used to work with he ended up retiring but then he became a hypnotherapist down in in harley street actually and um we were uh, on a job once and we're quite high up i'm not uh, afraid of heights but for me when i'm up my height i just want to jump i'm great for like a uh, bungee jumping and stuff like that they'll go one two oh he's gone um so i said to peter i said look peter i don't know where it is and he says and he sat down with me and he said right and all i remember from his, his session was you're in control you're in control and that still stays with me now so i'm in control how i think feel and act and i think that for me is a good and was born out of some kind of live experience and um i'm still cautious of ice don't get me wrong you've got to be cautious of risk um but I've, yeah, I'm facing a lot more. I mean, I've climbed, I've done rock climbing, I've done everything, parachuting a lot. But just that uh, sitting down with him, it just like a little click in my head. I am in control. Mm. Why do I want to jump? <laughs> cool. I read a book um, by one of the ex SAS guys, Ant Middleton, and he, he talks about this sort of um, thought process of the fear bubble. So, like, how you basically, you, you know, it's natural to have those sort of thoughts. You know whether it's um like you you know say if you're up high on a ridge and you know one step one way you could sort of slip to your to your mm-hmm. peril um but it, you know it's about controlling those thoughts and not let it overcome and 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 basically like you say dictate your, your mind and and um, your reaction to it like you, you know as much as it is a scary experience then but you are able to keep that under control and keep a tight lid on it you know you're going to be a you're going to get out of it in a in a better situation than overthinking and, and worrying for it mm-hmm. um last question what advice would you give to a younger you well i think it, a lot of pressures put on uh, young people um, to be this kind of uh, living learning machine and I think I was kind of a little bit like that I went to a, a good school I was pretty I was in the kind of the top class of it I, I wasn't clever I was probably to the bottom end of that um, but it was kind of a lot of pressure and I think uh, imposed on myself to be fair so I think if I would go back to my younger self I'd probably see a look the sooner you understand that you gain more from feeling your way through life than thinking your way through life, I think the more you'll achieve. And I, and I think that, because I tried to think my way when I was young um, and probably overthought things, overthought what people were thinking about me. But then I thought, what I feel inside, and I know that now, what I feel inside isn't generally the right thing. Or the right situation something's going to happen so i think it will be going back and say don't think as much don't overthink fail yeah i think that's a that's a great
great piece of advice. I mean, everyone these days seems to want the quick fix, you know, the the five minute take the tablet um, sort of outcome, but experience and hardship, you know, it, it creates character. Mm. Um, and, you know, life, I believe life's meant to be tough. Um, you know, and there will be situations where you'll be doubting yourself. Um, but I'm a firm believer in in self-belief and, and having that ability to sort of back yourself, um, you know, in, in tricky situations. And, you know, obviously, you know, not every circumstance and scenario is identical. You know, you're going into a highly skilled or trained environment, then, yeah, sure, you need to have training and, and a background. But, um, you know, life experience is, is just, it, it is exactly that. You know, it's experiencing it, indulging in it, um, not worrying too much about the past, not fretting too much about the future and enjoying the present. That's why yeah. they, it's the gift. That's why they call it the present. Mm-hmm. Martin, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I really appreciate your time and coming on. We're going to be sharing some images of your time out in Colombia um, that our guests can see. There'll be some links to it um, yeah, on the show notes and also on the social media page. So, um, yeah. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Is there anything that you'd like to wrap it up before we close it down? No, mate. Just thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to uh, to remember some of the great times that I had. So really, really, uh, quite to be honest. So thanks, Jim. Yeah, no, it's a very unique sort of experience that you've had. And, you know, a handful of people have only have sort of been involved in, in, in what you've been involved in. And I appreciate, you know, there's, there's stuff that you can't disclose. Um, but yeah, that's no, it's been great, great, great chatting to you and um, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Cheers, Noel.